This podcast is brought to you by Southbank Centre in celebration of the Hayward Gallery exhibition in the Black Fantastic. My name's Crystal Genesis. I'm a podcaster, journalist and arts and cultural curator. And I'm really excited to be bringing you these episodes spotlighting in the Black Fantastic. A series of conversations between musicians, writers and the artists exhibiting work at Hayward Gallery. We hear about their inspirations, how they approach their respective practices, as well as their own experiences of In the Black Fantastic exhibition. If you haven't seen this great exhibition yet, In the Black Fantastic is inspired by Afrofuturism, a cultural aesthetic which explores the African, predominantly diasporic experience. Works by the 11 contemporary artists make up the exhibition, drawing on themes such as science fiction, myth, folklore and Afrofuturism to examine the times we live in while imagining possibilities for the future. The works range a medium from filmmaking to sculpture and digital installation, and the exhibition is put together by curator, writer and journalist Echo Eschen. Celebrating artists who've touched on the theme of Afrofuturism in their work. We speak with the artist Lena Iris-Victor in conversation with poet and essayist Selena Godden. Lena, in the Black Fantastic exhibition, it reimagines myth, science fiction, spiritual traditions and the legacy of Afrofuturism. How would you say you incorporate Afrofuturism in your work, Lena? And what does it mean to you? Actually, I do not contend that my work exists within the genre of Afrofuturism. I think that to a degree... A lot of these labels that are exist are to kind of contain works and to like people to be able to like comprehend them, understand them within a particular context. And I've never actually attributed my work, though many others have attributed my work to belong to Afrofuturistic, you know, genre and tradition. It doesn't seem to contain it properly. For me, I kind of have this distancing when I think about Afrofuturism. And not to say that I don't love the genre. I actually really love the genre. When you think about Octavia Butler, you know, you think about writers like her that delve into what would be deemed as the fantastical, right? Like things that are outside of the mundane aspects of life, but also have so much to teach about everyday life at the same time. It's like, you know, the same way that myths work, I think, is that they speak about things that are very grand. And how would I want to project the image of people like myself or myself into the world? But it's not some idea of like the future or this like time-based idea. You know, it's, it's actually timeless in many ways. Selena, do you have any thoughts on that? What do you think about Afrofuturism? I really love what you said there, Lena. I'm really sceptical about labels and categories and whether you're calling it Afrofuturism or whether you're calling it magic realism or even just or surrealism or dreamscape, you know, and I, I put a lot of that in my work, kind of trippy, dreamy quality where you don't really know what's fact and what's fiction or taking really hard fact and then softening it and making it feel like it's just so unbelievably violent or that it couldn't possibly be real or the other way around, so unbelievably beautiful that it couldn't possibly be real. I think I've used that always in my work. I think I do sort of take bits of actual dreams and then kind of mix them into my writing. But um, my understanding of Afrofuturism is that. And I think this kind of idea of injecting survival and courage and resistance and rebellion and strength and power and all these beautiful things into our work and getting away with it 
a book that I got really excited about is Courtier Newland's A River Called Time, where he's just imagined an entire world where racism never happened and we don't have this fear or this conversation. It's just it. That's just so unbelievably powerful. But I mean, like Lena was saying, Mrs. Death, I imagine death as a black woman and as a black woman that's invisible in the sense that she's not seen as valid in society. So a homeless woman or a cleaner or an elderly woman and someone that's not seen, someone you walk past, someone you don't listen to. I very much did that on purpose. Um, I think I uh, based Mrs. Death on my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother in Jamaica She was a medicine woman and she was a healer. She couldn't read or write. If someone was giving birth, she would be there. Or if someone was sick, she would know which herbs and which leaves to pick and she would heal. And and this kind of idea of death as a black woman and also as death as a medicine woman. And this idea of how we think of death and how we imagine it as uh, something to be afraid of, something to run from. I think that's very much sort of steeped in in kind of my sort of DNA, this kind of idea of death as a sort of healer in a way, or that bringer of death might not be this man in a black cloak. It might be this sort of... The grim reaper. Yeah, exactly, that it might be this, you know, amazing, wise, old uh, black woman, you know. Actually, whenever I've thought about the end of the world, I always imagine, okay, that I'd be like Sarah Connor in The Terminator, that I'd be really tough in like a little vest and really good with guns. But the older I'm getting, the more I'm realising I'm literally going to be like the Oracle in The Matrix and just like offering people plates of cookies. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be the Oracle in The Matrix. I, I mean, she's like, the ultimately, I know every line she's ever spoken. I mean, I think she's the most <laughs> ultimate, amazing character in any film. I think The Matrix is one of the best films ever made as well. So it's funny you speak about death because I don't think people will really see it in the work that I do. But my use of gold, for example, is so tied to the idea of ancient funerary traditions, right? And how it was this kind of conduit between worlds, how it was this material used to allow people to enter into the next realm. And this is true for most Mesoamerican cultures, for Egyptian cultures, obviously, many Indian cultures as well. This idea that they were buried with gold. They weren't supposed to be excavated, obviously, and placed in museums and meant to be like viewed in this way. It was meant to be uh, a rite of passage. And so when I use gold, I think about the spiritual quotient of it all the time and how many ancient cultures is kind of been lost today, which is very sad. And I wish I, part of what I want to do is also even replace it back into this, having the sense of the spiritual quotient of gold. But for many older cultures, it was a sense that it was meant to be this conduit between worlds. And so definitely this conversation around this idea of death, but not in a, as I guess most cultures now, modern cultures think of it as, this is kind of depressing, sad, mournful event, but more that, there's actually like another place we go to afterwards. There's another place. It's a life kind of continues, it goes on. So for people who don't have a creative or art history background, their associations with gold varies, whether that's luxurious, expensive. How does that contrast with the associations people have with what you're trying to do? I think, to be fair, I think that the majority of people look at gold today and think of it in this kind of like, and I hate the term, but this idea of like, Bling, right? Economic wealth. It's so much attached now because of the idea of the gold bouillon and the gold reserves and all these things as that gold being this kind of 
commodity that speaks to monetary wealth and that being its only real value, talking about what is the value of things. And when we think about in this culture, mostly Western cultures, you know, Indian cultures still look at spiritual idea of gold. Like they, it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are, they still offer gold to their deities in most parts of India. So it's not seen as this thing of only being a measure of monetary value. But in the West, it very much is that. We count it and we hoard it it's like something that is meant to be like about just this particular realm because it's like, what can it do for me here, basically? And that's what I'm trying to dispel. And that's what I'm trying to have a conversation about is that as human beings, we've always had this relationship with gold. Since time immemorial, as soon as we've discovered gold, we put it in our temples, we put it in our churches, we buried our dead with it. I mean, it was so ceremonial, the process of like how you interacted with gold. And so... To me, that's been lost. So that's part of what I'm trying to do as well in my practice is like reinstate that value that has kind of been lost because it's, to me, the monetary value is, is valueless in many ways. Lena, you often use yourself as a subject and Selena, you weave in your personal experiences and memories into your poetry. And something that comes to mind right now is your memoir, Springfield Road. Tell me a bit about how you centre yourself in your work and how has it changed over time? One of the earlier works I made, I put myself in there, was a work called Syzygy, which is actually a work that's presented as a public artwork at the Royal Festival Hall. And none of my works are self-portraits. So, you know, I think about artists, like, for example, Frida Kahlo comes to mind, of course, of people that use themselves in their work. And I think her work is far more personal and far more self-reflective, right, in terms of her negotiating things with herself and obviously sharing that with the world ultimately, but it was a very self-reflexive type of move. And for me, it's not self-reflexive and it's not self-portraiture. It's purely performative. So there are other artists as well that speak about the fact that when you are the one that's present, you use yourself. For me, it's more of a universal conversation about the state of being, you know, the state of being and the state of being human, the state of being a woman, the state of being many things. So It's never about me trying to dig further, deeper into my kind of psyche. It's more just a performative, like I take on characters, if you will. I came up in the theatre world. That's what I did in London when I was younger. I was in the theatre, so, and film as well. So for me, it was like, it's just a continual extension, a continuum of that tradition. You know, I was a photographer for a while. I worked with subjects and people, and there's something to be said about you being able to kind of bring forth the character or the idea that you want to do yourself and there's something very powerful in that so for me it's just it's just simply about that like and I've just continued that how has this relationship changed over time I've gotten more comfortable with it you know initially it was obviously very kind of you're unsure it's like an experiment you know when I first started it was like synergy was literally like that image itself was just an experimental image and the work the way the fact that it ended up being what it is it's you know remarkable in many ways to me but but now obviously it's far more like considered and far more organized and contemplated like all the way that the garb falls and the way that I'm fashioning myself, all that stuff is far more considered and and premeditated than I think earlier works were. So it gives you a far more polished or fully conceived image than what I was doing in the beginning, which was far more just experimental. There's always something very vulnerable about 
writing the truth of yourself and and something that is honestly how you feel about something. And we often add beautiful layers of could be comedy or we add a little bit of fiction and we sort of hide ourselves in there. Writers do it all the time. I think most writers write about themselves and then they kind of cover it, you know, with different colours and I go, and she lived in Paris and she had straight blonde hair and they're totally talking about themselves. They've just given themselves a blonde wig and put themselves in Paris instead of Croydon, you know. I think lots of writers do that. With Springfield Road, the book, finishes at age 12. So it's very much the early childhood years. And that book took a long time to write and a very long time to publish, pretty much my whole um, 30s, a decade. And so to sort of dig around in those sort of really early, tender years, that real softness and and tragedy and, and dig around in that felt very vulnerable. I felt very raw for a long time afterwards. I learned how to protect myself better. I learned how to sort of add layers and hide myself better if I needed to, if I wanted to. I don't regret that, but I do feel like I've learned. You know, now I'm kind of you know, almost 20 years older than that when I first started it. in your work, you've used black liberatory figures such as Sojourner Truth and Selena, in your work, the most recent book, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, you've centred a black woman as a representation of death. Tell me about this. Is this something that you both do intentionally? It's the chicken or the egg, right, though? It's like, what comes first? It's like, what actually do you prioritise as a creative, as a person that creates? Like, for me, it's like all-encompassing. So there's never this point of like compartmentalising things and saying, okay, there's this and there's this, I'm going to add this ingredient, I'm going to do this as well. It's like, you think about it in a more holistic way. And the fact that I'm a Black woman, the fact I'm sure that you're a Black woman, I don't think that that is, you know, the the precursor to how you always have to think about things. For me, it's like, I'm interested in conversations that are not being had. I'm interested in conversations that I think are vacuums that I would like to fill and it just so happens that we kind of already fit that bill, but that doesn't mean that that's why I do it, right? So, for example, with the series you're speaking about, A Haven, A Hell, A Dream Deferred, I was thinking about different, you know, mythical prophetesses, right? And there's a mythical prophetess called the Libyan Sibyl. The Libyan Sibyl is a prophetess of ill-fated futures. She's from Greek and Roman mythology, However, what was interesting to me about her and the reason why I used her is because during the abolition of slavery, a lot of the writers and artists referred to her as a kind of figure to speak about the ill-fated futures that would befall, this kind of this retroactive way, would befall the Africans that were, you know, sent to the United States and to wherever else, you know, the South Americas and stuff. So... They attributed that figure, Libyan Sybil, and then they also likened it to Sojourner Truth as well. You know, so it's kind of all a mixed bag, basically. In that way, it's like, that's why I'm saying I don't really think about only the Black figures. However, I want to speak to them in, in a way, but not, not always in a direct way. For that, especially because it was such a historical piece of work, it was so much about the history of Liberia and America and that conversation, how those two worlds merge and how people were speaking about those two worlds merging. The word that's going round and round in my head is the word visibility. 
and this kind of idea of who is visible and who isn't visible and which stories we're drawn to or which stories we're drawn to telling. I remember this feeling of just, when is it my turn? When is it the other one's turn? You always have this thing where you, it's always from this one angle. When you're watching a, a TV show or a, I want to know what the little girl is thinking or I want to know what the wife is doing. And in every sort of movie, the wife just has the laundry basket on the hip and the whole story is about what the husband is going through. I'm quite obsessed with how how important we are to each other. The little tiny domino effects of how we are touching each other's lives and, you know, and how we affect each other and touch each other and without even realising that we're doing it. And I've always been really quite obsessed with that. I think it's very beautiful. It's our humanity that's so important and interests me. But within that humanity, who we're hearing from and the visibility of each story, I don't think as a writer I would have been any other way. Climbing into those details is what I really sort of see in Lena's work and those kind of symbols and details and these things are sort of triggering and and touching us and within the bigger story. Lena, you use so many interesting motifs, colours and patterns, light, textiles and materials within your work, such as gold and cloth. Tell me about how all these materials work together for a piece of art that you'd be creating. Um, pattern is the the nature of the universe, right? So everything is pattern-based, whether we can perceive it or not. Everything has a pattern, everything has a rhyme and reason and it has like a system behind it. And that's kind of, you know, the way I look at, for example, textiles, specifically African textiles, whether they be traditional or whether they be Dutch waxes or something, you know, because they're derivative of this conversation of the fact that everything has like a system and an order and a pattern and a, a structure going on behind it. And they weave and they tell stories in of themselves. And they tell stories in a very kind of visceral way because they're not, you know, when we talk about telling stories in this context, we talk about, you know, verbal language methods of telling stories. So when we speak about our ancestors, they had means and modes of depicting their place here. And they were through symbols. So you look at early cave paintings, you look at, you know, to this day what exists, but is obviously like through line from what was happening before, like Aboriginal dream paintings, for example. We have used as human beings pre-verbal means of communication. Think about the Dogon as well in Mali. They have no specific script or written language, but they, for example, discovered Sirius, the Sirius system before we did with our telescopes. We're talking about civilizations and peoples that had no means of communicating their place here and their conversation with the greater universe around us without our form of language, without this very kind of, you know, verbal, you know, the way that we understand verbal language today. And so that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how do you convey ideas to people? How do you have this kind of symbiotic and visceral reaction. But for me, the use of symbols and symbologies is really about that. It's about dissecting and having conversations about the patterns that exist around us, how we have interpreted those patterns um, before we had the ability to speak, to convey that in, you know, through writing. I've got the perfect paragraph where Mrs. Death talks about the beginning of time and cavemen and cave paintings. This is for you, Lena. 
You mark your place in time. You tell your tale. Time is short. A life is fast. But this picture on this cave wall may last longer than you will. You live forever in your words, in hearts and memories, in your creations and connections. The seeds you sow, the child you raise, the song you sing, the story you write with your time here. You are eternal. You are forever present in your oily DNA and your unique thumbprint. You know you live now. And here are all your fears. All your fears are here. And above all things, you all fear. You all fear me. You fear the end. You fear dancing with me. You fear Mrs. Death. So here is your proof, your evidence, the evidence you lived, the life you lived, here in this time, in these words, in this story, in this song, in this painting. It is human nature to try to stop time, to try to capture a life, a shooting star, to pin the butterfly wings and snap the lid shut. Wow. Lena, what's the one thing or a few things that you'd like people to take away when they experience your work, when they're in front of it, how they're reading your work? What things do you hope, I suppose, doesn't get lost? I mean... I just want people to take time. I mean, I guess it's a product of the time we're in right now where everything is so bite-sized and like so quickly digested and then moved on to the next thing is that I think in the space I create, because for me, it's not just about the work on the wall. It's about the space. It's about the feeling of space. I always endeavor with the work I do to envision space along with the work because the space kind of initiates the person to how they should or might want to engage with the work. And for me, it's about creating a space that allows for a kind of meditative state where you can feel licensed to take time. Um, I like blowing minds for a living, basically. (laughs) Just going around blowing people's minds. That's basically what I do for a job. That's what someone said. That's what I do. I quite liked it. So I thought I'd say it. And now I feel silly. (laughs) No, I think my work's just basically about love. It's always been about love. It's basically about loving each other. It's, It's about idealism. It's about hope and faith and courage and resistance and rebellion and unity and equality. And just all that good stuff, you know. It's it's never been about anything else. Sometimes I cover it in a bunch of swear words. Sometimes I'd, I'll cover it in rude words and, and make it all jokey. But it's the same message. And sometimes I'll do it, you know, straight up quite, you know, seriously. But I, I, I really do think in my, my work, the, the fundamental messages are pretty clear you know that there's this kind of this hope that drive that's driven in the middle of all of it and this kind of desire for a, a better ending a better story or trying to imagine a better tomorrow and seeking the good in all of this and the good in people I'm very idealistic I've always been called idealistic but things aren't ideal so until they are I will be idealistic if that's okay with you. That is 100% okay. I, 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 I want to piggyback. I feel that's 100% true. Like, I've never thought of it that way, but when you said that, it kind of really rang true. It's like this idea of putting your idealizations into the world, right? 
how you think things should look or be or how things should maybe even be considered. And this idea of rebellion and hope as well as being these kind of like key factors in the work as well. I think that in me, just in general, and then by default in the work, there's this very kind of rebellious under undercurrent in the work as well. If you're rebelling, it's something you're hoping for something better. So it kind of comes hand in hand. So I think it was really beautifully said. I really agree with everything you just said just now. Yeah. When I look at your pictures, the first thing they make me want to do is stand up taller, stand up straight, like lift my chin up, which is a really yeah. sort of powerful thing. Mm-hmm. It's gonna, <laughs> I look at these incredible, powerful, beautiful images and I'm just like, hang on a minute. <laughs> and I just love that. It makes me want to lengthen my neck and just take a big breath and take time, like the way you said earlier. So I love that about your work. Amazing. Thank you. Huge thanks to Lena Irish-Victor and Selena Godden for speaking with us. Thank you so much to all the artists and guests for taking part in these conversations. I'm your host, Crystal Genesis. This show is produced by Jaja Mohammed and researched by Zara Martin. In the Black Fantastic exhibition is on at Hayward Gallery until the 18th of September, 2022. Find out more about the exhibition at southbankcentre.co.uk and on Instagram at hayward.gallery and also check out their Twitter at Hayward Gallery.